Landscapes, a podcast about the legacy of colonialism on land relations in the Portuguese-speaking world. I'm your host, Michelle Gowan, speaking to you from Nogajuana, on the traditional territory of the Mississauga Anishinaabe, known also as Peterborough, Ontario. Welcome to the podcast series, produced by the Lucifone Land Legacies Research Group, and brought to you with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. In today's episode, we share the recording of the keynote speech presented by anthropologist Dr. Tanya Murray Lee at this year's symposium, Lucifone Land Legacies in Comparative Perspective, which was held virtually and hosted by the University of Saskatchewan, located on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis. This international and interdisciplinary symposium brought together scholars from across the globe to discuss the impacts of colonial land legacies and practices throughout the Lucifone, that is, the Portuguese-speaking world. Central to these discussions are the relationships between people and the land, and in particular, the relationships between and among indigenous peoples, colonizers, and settlers. In this recording, you'll hear two voices. The first belongs to symposium co-organizer and session chair, Dr. Laura Yoder, who introduces Dr. Lee and who moderates the Q&A session that follows the opening address. The second voice, of course, belongs to keynote speaker Dr. Tanya Murray Lee, who opens the symposium with her paper titled Colonial Land Legacies, Questions and Insights from Southeast Asia. Drawing on Anne Stoller's concept of imperial debris alongside Brenna Bandar's conceptualization of the circular relationship among identity, productivity, and land law through which racial rationales are perpetuated and land regimes are produced, and illustrating these processes through the context of her own research in Indonesia. Dr. Lee's thought-provoking speech provides a lens through which we might explore colonial and contemporary land relations, one that not only enables important insights, but also empowers us to ask productive questions. She offers a framework that can strengthen our approaches to and investigations of the entanglements that are colonial land legacies. So let's journey together into Lucescapes, with this symposium snippet featuring Dr. Tanya Murray Lee. Hello, everyone, in your respective time zones. We welcome you, and we're delighted that Dr. Tanya Murray Lee, the professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto, is offering our opening keynote. This symposium this week examines land formalization in areas formerly colonized by Portugal. And Dr. Lee has conducted long-term interdisciplinary research on many aspects of land relations in colonial disparate Southeast Asia, illuminating how multiple actors engage critical issues of land, labor, and livelihoods across time. Her recent work on transitions, access, exclusions, interventions and state projects have really set the stage for the questions that we are asking here. And it also has inspired us to convene diverse scholars in collaborative learning, part and parcel of the way that she has worked. This symposium aims to untangle in order to understand the enduring legacies of colonial land policies and practices. And Dr. Lee's creative research designs remind us that comparative work is often necessary to address certain kinds of complex questions. Threads of her widely used books, including The Will to Improve, Powers of Exclusion, and Land's End are woven throughout our project. And we eagerly anticipate her forthcoming ethnography on life in Indonesia's expanding oil palm zones. 
Her topic today is Colonial Land Legacies, Questions and Insights from Southeast Asia. And we will have some conversation with her at the end. Welcome to you, Dr. Lee, and we look forward to learning from your reflections on this topic. Thank you very much, Laura, for this invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here. Wish we could be in person. I'd love to hang out with all of you and listen to the whole conference, but I will get started. So I want to start with a broad conceptualization of the project that I think you are engaged in here, the focus of this conference, which is the attempt to track how far classifications, descriptions, rationalizations, practices, infrastructures, laws, and other inscription devices that were forged to govern land relations in the colonial period persist today, albeit perhaps refashioned, relabeled, or reassembled, and sometimes repurposed. So I would suggest that some persistence and repurposing is on the one hand unsurprising because the problematic of how best to govern relations between men and things, as Foucault put it, or how to exercise a governmental rationality, to what ends, through what means, under what rationale. These questions which presented a characteristic set of questions and dilemmas in colonial times or the tensions of empire as Cooper and Stoller call them, still present tensions and dilemmas today. So some of what might look like colonial legacy is um, that the underlying problematics of how to govern relations between people and land recur or persist. So I really applaud the focus on land. I mean, I found that um, land relations in my own research are really a key domain in which the question of how to govern territories, men and things are worked out. So what then are the key questions that one might want to consider comparatively? So the first one is the question of purpose. To what ends will relations between people and land be ordered? Is it for tax? Is it for revenue? Is it for order or pacification? Is the purpose to demonstrate territorial control vis-a-vis -vis internal opponents or external competitors? Is it for the purpose of shareholder profit or native improvement, the attraction of settlers, the reward of allies, increase of production, administration of population? Basically, there's a whole range of different ends and purposes to which one might want to uh, order the relationship between men and things. And, and these were problems for colonial officials had to work out and they still are problems that governments work out. So the first one is purpose. The second one is means. So through what means will this relationship be managed? Through the direct control over territory or through indirect rule? Will it be by addressing natives or citizens as individuals or as members of communities or groups? Will it be by fixing people on the land or in fact by detaching them to form a free proletariat? Will it be by investing in uh, native productivity or by sweeping natives aside? So these were different means by which those said previous objectives could be accomplished. And then thirdly, under what rationale? So what narrative, what authoritative body of knowledge is being presented to link the problems which have been identified, you know, the relations which are to be governed to the solutions which are proposed and the means adopted. And how is such a rationale defended from counter narratives and critiques? Under what conditions does it morph or realign? So these are questions to be examined through empirical research in different contexts, and they form the subject matter of many of the papers that will be presented in this conference and which I actually um, had the pleasure of reading over the last few days. But for now, I want to stand back to ask, why are colonial land legacies important? 
what is potentially problematic about their persistence? Why should we be concerned about what Anstola calls imperial debris or the rot that remains from colonial rule? And why precisely is it rotten? The argument that I will make here, specifically in relation to Indonesia, which is the main focus of my own research, is that racialism, the identification of difference and its arrangement in a hierarchy was intrinsic to the colonial enterprise. It provided the rationale for the occupation of territory, for rule over subject populations, and for the extraction of profit for a metropole, like no surprise there. The rot that remains, however, is the persistence of this kind of racialism in the contemporary period in a format that is only lightly revised. It's embedded in land law, in development policy, and in everyday ways of thinking and acting. And it's the enabling condition of much of the misery, dispossession, and disenfranchisement of large swaths of the global population today. There are echoes of similarly racialized practices and rational, uh, rationalities in other parts of Southeast Asia. I'm going to focus on Indonesia, but the picture is not uniform. Indeed, Southeast Asia provides a panorama in which differences among British, Dutch, and French colonial powers, their land policies, and continuity or rupture from colonial rule can uh, very well be examined. So clearly I don't have time to do a complete job of this comparison in half an hour, which is the time I've been given. But what I will try to do is to lay out something of a framework for such a study and delve uh, into the Indonesian case, which I know best, and I'll make side references to other colonial situations when they're especially pertinent. So what then is this imperial debris of which Anstola speaks? In the sphere of land relations, the nature of this debris has been well examined by Brenna Bandar in her book, The Colonial Lives of Property. Her argument, in brief, is that racial or race-like divisions are constitutive of colonial and contemporary land regimes in which the association between a kind of person, a kind of land use, and the quality of their property rights is circular. In contemporary Indonesia, the chain of reasoning goes like this. The National Land Agency grants concessions to plantation corporations on the grounds that they can utilize the land efficiently. Implicitly, customary landholders cannot use land efficiently. Hence, their customary land rights do not qualify as full property rights. Their low productivity and incomplete property rights confirm that they are people of low value. As people of low value, they cannot be expected to use land efficiently and they can legitimately be displaced by corporations. So is that circle between a kind of person, a kind of land use and a kind of land right that she is pointing to here? And this, I would argue, is the fulcrum of the colonial debris. This contemporary reasoning, which I have outlined, this circle in Indonesia replicates or actually to a remarkable degree, actually sustains the reasoning behind the 1870 land law of the Dutch East Indies, which claimed that all land was the domain of the Dutch crown, except for tiny areas that were recognized as individual private property. The law gave nominal recognition to customary land rights, which it declared to be communal and inalienable. But to this day, the Land Bureau has never mapped or gazetted communal land and offers customary landholders individually or collectively, very little protection. The main purpose of the 1870 land law 
was to free up land to allocate for plantation, timber, and mining concessions. The 1870 land law is still basically in place, I would argue. Its racialized premise was retained on independence in the clause of the 1945 constitution that gives the state the right to control and allocate land in the national interest. This has been consistently interpreted as a license to issue corporate land concessions. The racialized premise was retained in the 1960 land law, which was a compromise between nationalist, communist and Islamist forces and the army brokered by Sukarno. This law promised a land to the Tiller style land reform that was not implemented, but more significantly, it continued the colonial practice of issuing corporate land concessions for mining and plantations. To this day, then, the effect of this is that around 40% of Indonesia's farmland is covered by corporate land concessions. Corporations, it turns out, are the kinds of person trusted to use the land efficiently, and they accordingly have secure land rights. Meanwhile, the customary land rights of most rural people in Indonesia are weak and inferior because the people who use this land and the ways in which they use it are deemed to be inferior. Decades of advocacy, which began during the colonial period when colonial era scholars and officials who were appalled by the devastation caused by the fallout from the 1870 land law and by the granting of corporate land concessions demanded that land be set aside for the native population. So this was a struggle already in colonial times. This kind of advocacy persists among indigenous rights activists today, but it has made shockingly little headway. Ordinary people's land rights are discounted because the value of the people and their productivity is discounted. This is imperial debris, a racial logic that's so deeply entrenched in the law and in the national psyche that it is barely noted. Individual land concessions are contested by local people attempting to defend their land and forests, but the entire logic that constitutes these people their land uses and their land rights as inferior is not subject to a thoroughgoing critique along the lines of its colonial and racial heritage. So delving a little bit more into the colonial history, how did the three elements of Bandar's satanic circle combine? How did a deficient, said to be deficient kind of person, become linked to a deficient kind of production worthy of a weak and inferior kind of right to land? How did this form of governing, reasoning and acting come to be? And how has it been sustained in contemporary configurations? Or as we'll see looking across Southeast Asia, occasionally ruptured and disavowed. So the first of the three moves then is the division and classification of the population. Because to allocate land differently, to different kinds of people, you have to imagine or create different kinds of people, right? So this act of division and classification is a crucial part of this kind of colonial land regime. The classic technique for governing population in the late colonial period, say 1870 to 1940 in Asia and also in Africa, was to divide people into distinct types and govern them according to these types. In much of colonial Africa, where rule was indirect, a distinction was made between natives who were fit to become citizens, people who were thought of as urban, educated, evolue, whatever was the term, and rural people who should be treated as subjects of customary chiefs who administered communal territories on their behalf 
and governed both people and land under so-called customary laws. So a classic division technique of division in colonial jurisdictions in Africa was urban versus rural, citizens versus subjects. In much of Southeast Asia, the axis of difference was vertical. Peasants, especially rice producers in the fertile valleys and lowlands, were understood to be fit to hold land individually, while people living in the uplands, called hill tribes in Thailand, non-Christian tribes in the Philippines, and Montagnard in the French territories, were to be firmly attached to communal land and governed as collectivities. So this particular imperial debris still resonates today, strongly and perhaps positively, one could argue, in the Philippines, where the Spanish-era category non-Christian tribes morphed into the contemporary global circulating category of indigenous people, a group that were legally enfranchised in 1997 with the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act. In Thailand, hill tribes are still to this day treated as other, with an emphasis on their ethno-cultural identity as non-Thai. Many still do not have Thai citizenship and they are vulnerable to eviction. In French Indochina, especially Laos and Cambodia, Highlanders or Montagnards are still treated as distinct and deficient and subject to policies such as forced resettlement and the loss of access to their forest land. The colonial history in Indonesia is actually rather different. During the brief British interregnum in 1812 to 1816, Sir Thomas Stanford Raffles, who rules Java in that period, inadvertently laid the groundwork for a legal trajectory that was actually diametrically opposed to the one he advocated. So Raffles brought with him a concept which was popular among British colonial officials in India at the time, which was the a view of Asian villages as timeless, coherent little republics. On this basis, he determined that villages in Java would be a convenient vehicle for tax collection until such time as individual land titles could be granted. When the Dutch resumed control in 1816, they decided that villages could be used as vehicles for tax collection and in fact for forced production permanently, as this approach was in keeping with what they understood to be the natural collectivism of Asian people who were the opposite of Europeans in every way. So if Europeans are individualistic, Asians must be communalistic. If Europeans were market-oriented, Asians must be subsistence-oriented, and so on. So for the Dutch, then, the racial logic was absolute. East versus West, us versus them. Indeed, native collectivism was axiomatic for the Dutch. They required this collectivism to make their whole racial schema work and to maintain it, they had to overlook or in fact abrogate individual land rights which already existed in many parts of Java. In one rather, one could say, amusing or tragic case, in 1833, a Dutch regent toured the region to collect the lontarlees on which natives had recorded their land titles and burn them. Because basically, you know, native land titles recorded on lontar leaves, if not on paper, suggested that native subjects were not in fact collectivist, propertyless subjects that the Dutch required them to be in order to institute their governing and their land regime. So that was a difference between the British and the Dutch colonial way of thinking even at that time. 
Further, the Dutch did not divide the population on a vertical axis. So they stand out there um, from other colonial powers in Southeast Asia, right? The British in India had castes and tribes, upland lowland, the French did the same, the Filipinos did the same in the Philippines, but the Dutch did not do this. They did not divide the population on a vertical axis. They decided that all people who were not Dutch or of mixed Dutch descent, that's a, a bit confusing, were equally native from the perspective of law, including land law. Hence, neither lowland rice farmers nor highlanders, and they were not treated as distinct, should be issued with individual land titles. And to this day, only about 20% of land parcels in Indonesia have been titled, of rural land parcels have been titled, only about 20%. This means that 80% of Indonesia's rural people still hold their land on the basis of um, customary rights. In the Dutch view of things, these customary rights were intrinsically communal, right? This was their enforced communalism, but communal titles have not been issued either. Hence the chronic vulnerability of all Indonesians in relation to state authorized displacement. I would argue that people who can be robbed of their land and kicked around are not enfranchised citizens. Rural Indonesians, I would argue, are still in a colonial situation. The color of the ruling group may have changed, but the scorn of today's political and economic elites for rural people and their capacity to kick them around with impunity and the land law that licenses dispossessory practices remain intact. Imperial debris indeed. So the first axis then is the question of the identification of the population and its division, right? What type of people are we dealing with? How will they be governed broadly and specifically? What are the right kinds of land rights which will pertain to them? That's the first question. The second axis of this colonial debris or imperial debris is the evaluation of production. So Raffles, who was a liberal, was impressed actually by the diligence and productivity of Javanese farmers in uh, 1816. And he expected them to prosper and to develop in ways that were similar to yeoman farmers in Britain through their hard work and their capacity to truck barter and trade. So he had a, one could argue, a non-racial view of them in the sense that he thought they were rather like British farmers who would prosper through their hard work as other farmers do. In contrast, Dutch officials applied a racial lens that held natives to be lazy and inept. Hence, they had to be compelled to produce a surplus beyond their subsistence needs. Based on this evaluation, the Dutch installed a system of forced cultivation of export crops, sugar and coffee in the period 1830 to 1870, to raise revenue to run the colonial state and to furnish profits for Dutch corporations. After this system ran its course, the 1870 land law enabled the regime to issue large land concessions to foreign investors and the plantation era began. Both of these systems coerced production among smallholders and the displacement of smallholders by corporate plantations hinge on the same racialized evaluation that the natives are lazy and cannot develop their land or produce a surplus on their own. The same assessment that natives are inefficient and or unwilling producers of global market prop crops still today justifies the expansion of corporate plantations in Indonesia. It's especially virulent outside areas of intensive rice production, where shifting cultivation and extensive agroforestry systems still prevail. These extensive farming systems, land uses, 
confirm racialized stereotypes of lazy natives who seem to run their farms in a disorderly way, although it turns out that they are very efficient in relation to labor, which is often the scarce resource. Nevertheless, they're deemed to be you know, inefficient and unproductive. In fact, even in relation to the production of global market crops, there is no evidence to support the claim of native deficiency. This was a, you know, an essential move in this racialized thinking that the natives are unwilling and incapable, but there is actually no evidence to support it. Farmers in Java and Sumatra eagerly adopted the production of coffee early in the 18th century, around 1725, as soon as seedlings became available and a global market opened up. They lost interest in growing coffee when the Dutch imposed a monopoly on the coffee trade and set prices so low that farmers tore up their coffee groves in disgust. And from then on, only from then on, when they could not get a decent price of return on their labor, from then on, they had to be coerced. It was a similar story with other crops. Managers of large tea and tobacco plantations demanded that native production be suppressed as they were afraid of being outcompeted by native producers. In the case of rubber, smallholders did actually outcompete rubber plantations and drove many into bankruptcy. That story is repeated today with the current boom crop, oil palm, as industry lobbies insist that the proper way to grow this crop is on huge, monocropped, professionally managed plantations. To make this argument, they must overlook smallholder capacity to grow this crop and overlook the fact that they grow this crop, in fact, very efficiently achieving similar or better yields per hectare when the necessary infrastructure is in place. So this discounting, overlooking of native production, productive efficiency and enthusiasm for the production of global market crops has a long colonial heritage and it is still in place. Therefore, the ongoing displacement of Indonesian villages from their land and currently the issue of 10 million hectares of land concessions to oil palm plantation corporations is based on a racialized assessment of productivity, imperial debris. Recognizing that Indonesian villages are competent producers would remove the alibi for corporate expansion. It turns out from my, the research that I've been conducting on plantations with my um, colleague Pujo Samadhi from Gajamada University, that plantations are not especially efficient or productive either. They're corrupt and leaky machines, we have found. The state subsidies accorded to plantation corporations are enormous. Virtually free land, subsidized labor, favorable access to credit, and repeated bailouts. The investment in ordinary farmers is minuscule in comparison. Both economically and politically, Indonesia is still organized for extraction at the people's expense, basically to support a corporate extractive regime and not to believe in or trust or actually be very interested in the productive capacity of Indonesia's own millions of farmers who are effectively neglected, not supported, overlooked, and sometimes dispossessed and kicked around. Looking around the Southeast Asia region for comparators, there are several points to note. There were plantations in French Indochina in the colonial period, and colonial rot remains there, I would argue, in the continued dismissal of highlanders, especially shifting cultivators as forest destroyers and primitives. In terms of land law, however, there was a more complete rupture in the period of revolution and independence. 
New land laws do not simply replicate colonial ones, or in fact, sustain colonial ones, as in the case of Indonesia. This is especially true in Vietnam, I would argue, where the rights and entitlements of citizenship are quite robust. Nevertheless, in the past 20 years, massive new corporate land concessions have been issued in Laos and Cambodia, displacing a great many farmers. Political and military elites profit from the people's resources with impunity. So in that sense, it's rather similar to Indonesia, but the rationale is, is different. There are few new plantation concessions in Vietnam where the productive capacity of farmers is more trusted and supported and farmers have reasonably secure land tenure. Ownership remains with the state, but individual land licenses are reliable, right? People won't just be deprived of them on a whim. There are massive new plantations in the Philippines where old and new rural elites grab land and rule coercively. In Thailand, interesting case, because it had no specific colonial history. There are to this day very few plantations and oil palm is grown by smallholders who receive good state support. To a significant extent, Thai peasants are in fact enfranchised citizens who are capable of making their demands stick. So here we see the playing out of different colonial trajectories. And also, I would argue, different resolutions of the Cold War, you know, in Vietnam, a communist revolution, in Indonesia, the massacre of half a million people and the objection of the, you know, and the state of objection of the citizenry since then, you know, people are, are still disenfranchised. And in uh, Thailand, the lack of a colonial history producing a kind of a, a more feisty, robust sense among the people that they should not be kicked around and that they should in fact be cared for by their state and hence their capacity to, and their assistance on making demands. In Malaysia, there's yet another trajectory. Colonial era plantations have morphed and expanded. And I would say that lazy native rationales are absolutely intact in Malaysia, but the popular pushback is not as intense as it is in Indonesia because Malaysia has undergone what I would call a proper agrarian transition. A great many citizens, including young people, have found their way to the cities and to urban jobs. Hence, they are less interested in becoming farmers or holding on to customary land. So that, that's another element, you know, that plays into these pictures. So there's definitely imperial debris, but it's less damaging in Malaysia than it is elsewhere in the region, where agricultural-based livelihoods remain crucial to huge segments of the population. Okay, so pulling this together and you know completing the circle. So, you know, Brenna Vandal's argument is that a kind of identity is linked to a certain assumption or, or um, declaration about who is or is not productive. You know, certain kind of land use and a certain kind of land law. In the colonial period, different kinds of people were understood to use land more or less efficiently, and these evaluations were linked to the kind of land rights they were able to claim. Identity, hierarchy, and rights were linked in a circular fashion and they were mutually constitutive. The current configuration of land law across the, the Southeast Asia region, who has access to land, who is excluded from access and on what basis has deep roots in the colonial period. It is the rot that remains from the racial logics of colonial rule. In Indonesia, since the colonial period, corporations have had legally backed land concessions while customary landholders, especially those engaged in shifting cultivation, are legally vulnerable in practice. And in practice, the people and their claims 
are in fact regularly swept out of the way or kicked out of the way. The closest comparator is probably the Philippines, where the people are similarly disenfranchised both legally through their weak land rights and vis-a-vis -vis a rapacious regime that displaces customary landholders at will. In Thailand, land rights and citizenship are more solid due to the absence of a colonial history and the feisty claims making of what anthropologist Andrew Walker calls Thailand's political peasants. And land titling in Thailand is very well advanced. In Vietnam, contemporary land rights reflect a more complete rupture with colonial land regimes and communist party commitments to just treatment of rural people. Lowland farmers in Vietnam are viewed as productive citizens and holders of rights, but Highlanders less so, as colonial era axis of difference and deficiency based on elevation still resonates. So one task the conveners assigned to me was to trace the influence of one of these colonial regimes on another. Here I've tracked the different regimes historically and compared them, you know, statically and definitely synoptically. Uh, but I think the deeper task of actually in, uh, the archival task of figuring out to what extent they were looking over their shoulder and what they learned from other colonial powers is not one that I have undertaken except in really small ways. And I think it's it's a task that still lies ahead. And I think it's a really fruitful one. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Much to think about with the things that you have raised on these points. And I think we're all thinking about our own context that we know well and considering how these topics come to play there. One of the questions that I had, which I think I want to do a lot more thinking about would be about this required collectivism and how that came to be in, in different ways and times and places. And I wondered if you would be able to say a little bit more about how that may have played out in the settings that you've seen, for example, in Thailand or in the Philippines, where the outcomes were a little bit different from those that you, that you saw in Indonesia. Were there ways in which this collectivism emerged differently or, or played out differently among the sort of splits that you saw with Highlanders and Lowlanders? Do you have any comments about the phenomenon of collectivism in those settings? Right. So that's actually the topic of my most parroted paper that I, you know, attempted to write specifically on this topic, because I really became aware of how recurrent it was that across different colonial regimes, um, authorities had a lot of anxiety about individual tenure. And their concern, uh, sometimes it was often um, a paternalistic one, you know, a concern either that the feckless and foolish natives would be displaced by wily, more entrepreneurial trading groups, or would fall into debt and mortgage their land, lose their land, end up being landless, and therefore um, a problem of order would arise. So really it was the issue of order and how best to, to, to govern certain kinds of subjects. And the, the worry was the self-dispossessory dynamic that exists among peasants, you know, when they fall into debt and then end up mortgaging their land. Basically, petty capitalism of the kind that I described in Landsat, right? Um, so the, the, the idea then of the communal tenure was to fix people permanently in place so that they will not be able to dispossess themselves. They will have access to customary land in perpetuity on a communal basis. 
So, you know, if you think about what was the objective, you know, what was the problem to be governed, it was in part the problem of um, incipient capitalism and the dispossessory effects of a land market fueled by debt. And that was one of those interesting issues of travel, because I did find secondary literature reference to rulers in, uh, to British colonial authorities in Africa, complaining about the chaos which had occurred in India, because they failed to pin peasants successfully in place, and therefore dispossessory dynamics went crazy there, and praising the Dutch, who they thought had efficiently glued everybody in place, right? So, you know, this, this kind of idea, this kind of problematic did travel colonial circuits. But the other part of it is the kind of more racialized one that I was highlighting, which is the idea of the East and perhaps of the African as kind of naturally communitarian. So it wasn't understood to be imposing a communal logic upon people who were naturally individualistic, but in fact, confirming the natural communitarianism of a racial other for whom individual land tenure would be a mistake and or a culturally inappropriate innovation and something from which they could only lose, from which they had to be protected. So, you know, I think thinking about, you know, what's the reason for the, for the collectivism, like what was the problem it was to be solved in these different colonial contexts and to what extent it was actually implemented. The irony in Indonesia is that they talked up this communal thing, but they never actually did it, right? There was no gazetting of communal land. Communal land rights were never effectively established. So all this communal talk did was to weaken individual rights, which were actually, you know, present and emergent. To this day, people still don't have titles, but neither do they have solid customary rights. So in the Philippines, in the kind of contemporary moment, the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act has been interesting and very complex. It was the product of, of kind of contemporary mobilizing around the idea that Indigenous people, you know, are naturally communal and collective and require territories. But what I've read about it, so it was the product of, you know, of activism and popular demand rather than just a sort of paternalistic, you know, we should hold everybody in place so they don't dispossess themselves kind of idea. What's been really challenging in the Philippines, as I understand from my reading, is the question of, well, what then is the proper unit? Like, is it, is it a district? You know, is it a village? What happens with all those places which are in fact ethnically heterogeneous, where people have moved and migrated and you have mixed populations. And are you now going to send everybody back to their origins? Or how would you now implement a communal fix at this point in time, you know, when, when it's not so obvious, like who is the community, how it should be bounded, what kinds of rights they want or need, and what you do with all the other people, you know, who are also there. So, you know, the Philippine uh, attempt to do this has been very interesting. And for my colleagues in Indonesia who are advocating for indigenous collective territories, I always say, go read the Philippines literature or at least look at what the experience has been before you march down that path, because it turns out to be not easy to do. And in fact, sometimes not a source of justice, but some, you know, some other really troubling patterns as well. Thank you so much. And we just see that replicated, echoed across the region. So thank you so much. 
We have a question here, the first one from Hans Hagerdahl, who's in Sweden, and he has here that you mentioned the Indonesian massacre of 65-66. Can you explain a bit how the communist movement, one of the largest outside the communist bloc, stood in the way for entrepreneurs or economic elites in managing their land access? And he thanks you for a great talk. Right. So there were a lot of debates on this in the Communist Party at the time. The Communist Party was an elected party in Indonesia, electorally popular. And so for them, the electorate was important and they didn't want to necessarily alienate rural landed people by a strong kind of land to the tiller program because, you know, they, they need these rural landlords on their side as well. They're an electoral party, right? An elected party. So they often focus their attention on the plantations and the, the Dutch and other foreign-owned estates, because that was a more obvious other, you know, a more obvious villain is to, to, re, to take back the plantation lands and redistribute it, whereas taking land from village landlords was always more contentious. So that was, you know, part of it. You have to read Jamie McKee's sort of history of the Communist Party and, and, and their perspectives on land reform to really understand all the ins and outs of it. But at the end of the day, the 1960 land law, which was passed at that period when the Communist Party was active, was a huge concession because it basically sustained plantations and the right to grant plantations. And it set the ceilings for land ownership quite high, so high that for most even village landlords, they would fall below the ceiling. So it was not very radical. And many people in the Communist Party thought it was a betrayal. You know, it didn't go anything like far enough. Nevertheless, it went too far for many people. <laughs> hence, you know, hence the massive backlash, right? Both from village landlords who participated in the massacres, and certainly for the owners and defenders of plantations. And by that time, by 1960, the Indonesian army had been put in charge of nationalized plantations. So they had the most to lose from returning plantation land to the people. The army was getting comfortably in control of plantation territories and busy stamping out worker mobilizations, which had been very vigorous during the 50s. So that was that history, right? And, and that was all part of the, the dreadful massacres that take place. Thank you so much. We have a question from David Webster, who is asking if you would like to comment on the role of young Indonesian activists in trying to reform land laws today. For example, groups such as Aliansi Masyarakat Adat Nusantara, Aman, trying to forge a common indigenous traditional people's identity. Right. Thanks, David. So I actually just published a paper on Indonesia's contemporary land reform, you know, really trying to look at, at like what is the status of land reform today? You know, it's come back on the agenda. And, and what you see there is a, a pretty weak platform, you know, very moderate and basically still very ineffective. So I would argue that the activists working on land reform, they had a moment of enthusiasm when Jokowi was elected on a platform of land reform and sort of pro-farmer, pro-worker, but he's turned out to be a neoliberal par excellence and has just passed a law which drastically reduces land, labor, and environmental protections of all kinds. So from what I can see, land reform is again dead. And although Aman and has been, and uh, other organizations have been vigorous in pressing for the recognition of customary land rights, 
and there's talk of that and there's even some legislation supporting that the actual land areas that have been titled are minute i think it's less than 200,000 hectares and that's over from years of lobbying and years of ngo investment in mapping and you know lobbying from district parliament all of that work has produced tiny 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 areas during a period in which 10 million hectares more have been granted to corporate plantations. So you'd have to say the train is running steadily in the wrong direction and that the counter movements attempting to change the equation have not been successful. I know that's a awful thing to say, but it's like a reality check. You know, is this working? Is this lobbying? Is this all this activism, all of this legal work, all of this organizing work, has it worked? Has it stopped the train? Are customary landholders in Indonesia becoming enfranchised? And the answer overwhelmingly is no. Thank you. We're going to go to um, what appears as the bottom question now from uh, Jose Adalima, who is one of our participants from Mozambique. His question there is, what role plays the disjuncture between capitalist mass production versus diversification and shifting cultivation, if you can comment on that. So I would say there's a, a couple of things to kind of tease out there. One is that shifting cultivation, at least in Southeast Asia, has always been compatible with cash crop production. So many people who grow their rice on a Sweden basis also have groves of cash crop trees, you know, whether it's cocoa, or coffee, or rubber, or even oil palm. So given enough extensive land, when not squeezed for land, the pattern is not shifting cultivation versus the market, it's a combination. Like keep your extensive land, grow your food when it makes sense, stop growing it for a few years if the cash crops are really booming and you have a chance to make you know, some good money. Keep your land reserves so that when the cash crop crashes or something else comes along, you know, you can change tack. Basically, you know, customary landholders with a, a sufficiently large land area mix food and cash crop production, a variety of crops, and they have a view of centuries, right? They want to keep this mixed farming system going, you know, for their children and grandchildren. So that's a possible model where it collapses is when there are large land concessions taking up all the space or much of the space. So then the indigenous landholders are kind of squeezed off. They're squeezed into smaller and smaller areas where their preferred mixed system of food and cash crop production gets kind of crunched down into tiny areas and eventually cannot be sustained. So the, I don't quite know what you mean by the capitalist mass production, but I would argue that a, a plantation concession of 10,000 hectares, and now collectively in Indonesia, 10 million hectares, is an entirely different form of production with completely different land dynamics, labor dynamics, but also what Pujo and I have found in our research is a completely different form of citizenship. Nobody who is living in a zone of what we're calling corporate occupation can exercise ordinary village citizenship because the corporations basically absorb the state. They become the paymasters 
village officials, government officials become collaborators, officially collaborators, not just informally through payoffs, but officially appointed to smooth the task of the corporation, right? So that's a completely different land system. So I, I would make the distinction not between kind of capitalist, you know, I would, I would say corporate agriculture has to be treated as its own phenomenon. And you have to look really carefully at like what enables this. Farmers integrating cash crops into their production system is three centuries old in Indonesia, began with coffee around 1717, I think, or 1725. They know how to do these things. They know how to integrate food and cash crops and balance it all out according to their own logics when allowed to do so, when enfranchised, when able to hold on to their land and ideally also supported. Great, thank you. Let's go to Matthew's question next, uh, that we hear echoes of Mamdami's work when you reference construction of citizens and subjects in the African context. The main result of this practice is the creation of centralized despots, customary authorities or chiefs who often exploit their subjects in the domain of land. To what extent do these chiefs or customary authorities figure in profiting from dominance of customary landholding patterns in contemporary Indonesia or elsewhere in Southeast Asia? Thank you for that question, Matthew. So I would say that in Indonesia, because the customary land holdings effectively do not exist, right? There are no collective land holdings presided over by chiefs because it never actually happened. So from that point of view, they're not despots in the same way as under some African systems of indirect rule where, you know, where chiefs really did preside over customary territories and were able to dole out land, you know, give out land or retain it for their families or sell it or whatever else despotic things have done with it over the years. So because the, the communal authorities in most of Southeast Asia have not been that strong because communal land tenure has not been well entrenched, their capacity to be despots is somewhat limited, I would argue. But does this ever happen? Yes. So this is a phenomenon that Marcus Colchester from First Peoples Network calls layeredism. You know, this idea that customary authorities treating themselves as kind of lords and decision makers empowered to sign away customary territories to corporations. And it's, it's the whole worry of what June Boras calls like the one-stop shop, you know, that the, it's the big risk. As soon as you consolidate a customary territory and install a so-called customary chief and empower this person to sign contracts on behalf of the group, you've now created what can be a radically undemocratic structure. And the extent to which such a structure actually exists across different kinds of land regimes, even customary land regimes across Southeast Asia, I'd say is probably really variable. You know, there've been some horrible examples in Papua, for example, of, you know, customary chiefs being paid off or cheated or misled, signing away vast territories, but usually there's pushback because people do not acknowledge that said chiefs are in fact lords of the land, you know, and dispute their authority to have done the things that they do. So I'd say it's a mixed picture. And it's partly because that kind of indirect rule was never entrenched in Southeast Asia in the same way as it was in Africa. It never actually happened in the same way. Good, thank you so much. Let's go to Aaron de Grassi's question. 
How do you conceptualize the mechanisms or practices by which legacies are constituted through active reproduction so that we do not rest only on the assumption that legacies occur naturally through processes of automatic persistence or inertia, even in physical metaphors of rot and remains in Ponce? Mm -hmm. That's such an interesting question. You know, I really appreciate that question in the sense of continuity is always as much of a puzzle as change, right? Like if things appear to be replicated or sustained, I absolutely agree with you. You know, we always have to look at how is this being done? You know, why is this uh, able to occur? So I would say, you know, in part, habit and inertia are relevant. You know, I think in our book, Powers of Exclusion, we decided if, if, we, if we'd had a fifth power, it should have been habit, <laughs> inertia, like doing things the way they've always been done turns out to be a power in itself, you know, that, that just has to be reckoned with. But I agree with you, it, 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 you know, that's a bit facetious, right? Because there's always work involved. So, you know, I, I think failures to question, I mean, one way to think about it would be, why are plantation logics not more challenged today? You know, one could argue that's colonial rot, but one could also say they are being produced afresh by the World Bank and it's kind of attribution of certain kinds of land as being, you know, yield gaps and underproductive. And that's to say these, these same concepts are present in a whole series of scientific and professional pronouncements on a whole variety of levels. They've evolved since the colonial period. You could say it's in the same logic defining who is or is not a worthy rights holder and whose land use is or is not of the type to merit secure tenure is still the game. But the languages and the modes of transmission and naturalization of those languages have persisted. But I, you know, I agree. I mean, I, I think that the whole idea of legacy is, is like it's a heuristic. Let, let's look at how this appears to be similar or what appears to be the echo or continuity here. And then you're completely right. Then let's question it. You know, so how, so why? But also comparatively, why here and not there? You know, if there was, in fact, as I've suggested, a rupture in land relations, let's say in Vietnam, such that contemporary land relations are not a continuity of French ones in the same way as has happened in Indonesia, what's the difference? So I, I think colonial land legacies, for me, other big turning points would be Cold War legacies. You know, Vietnam had a communist revolution. Indonesia killed half a million people. The Philippines still has an active insurgency. Thailand killed some people, not that many, but basically the ruling regime concluded that it had to outcompete the communists who were still there in the countryside by treating peasants well. So these also, I would say, have really important legacies. So I wouldn't pin everything on the colonial, like there's the colonial and then there's, I think that would be another era at which the different ways in which the Cold War was resolved in these different countries also has an imprint in what happened to that colonial. Was it sustained? as it was fundamentally in Indonesia, was there a rupture? You know, and if, if practices have come back, is it colonial or is it coming from other sources? I really like the question, why here and not there? Pushing us to, to look at more elements. Right. As Mita Cabra's question, she's saying, I was trying to think of your argument in the context of India 
And despite a colonial history similar to Indonesia with a well-entrenched lazy native discourse, and despite a fairly large exit from agriculture, we seem to be closer to the feisty Thai case of protesting farmers practicing rightful resistance. What else apart from imperial debris could then explain inter-country similarities or differences with this case? Well, so totally love the question, Asmita. And I think this, this is where comparative colonialism and you know comparative research really pays off. One of the things which has really struck me reading Indian material, especially activist material, is how often Indian activists refer to the courts or to the law and to the expectation that, let's say, a Supreme Court ruling will mean something, like in the right to food movement or the right to information movement, etc. Like Indonesians would make no such assumption. <laughs> they don't expect the law to do anything. They have no faith. You know, it's like you can lobby the law, you know, forever, and it still won't make a difference to your life because law does not work in the same way. People are not enfranchised in relation to the law. They don't trust it. So I think, you know, that would be one possible point of difference. Like what, what use are Indians able to make of law and legal activism and the idea that you can sue the state for its failures to make good on its constitutional obligations, a prospect which appears to have some traction in India and in Indonesia would be ridiculous. It just wouldn't make any sense at all. You know, it just, it just wouldn't compute, right? And here we have two massive agrarian economies with these different colonial and post-colonial trajectories, you know, leading to really quite different outcomes. So I definitely think this line of questioning is, is on the right lines, right, to understand. At the same time, you'd have to say the level of inequality in India is, as you know all too well, horrendous, scandalous, and hasn't been resolved by this feistiness, right? So, you know, yes, feistiness, not producing equitable results as it apparently did in Thailand, right? I mean, Andrew Walker argues that there is no rural poverty in Thailand, nothing of the kind that you would see in India or Indonesia or even Philippines. So, you know, something worked there in the sense that this feistiness produced a kind of attentiveness to rural people and their problems which is not repeated in India, in fact. So I love these questions. Thank you. That, that's a good one. And our final question for this session would be from Susana Machos-Viegas, who thanks you for your talk and says, I wonder how you could reframe ideas of resonance and heritage from colonial times in order to take into account the fact that what we have now is a final ruin of the modern era in the new climate regime. Oh, I'd love to hear what you have to say on this, Susanna, because I think it would be more interesting than anything I have to say. I mean, okay, so one, one small, real small iteration of this. I'm going to be vague because I, I don't remember the details, but a group of climate scientists recently put out a manifesto saying that half of the world's territory has to be set aside for conservation in the name of climate, you know, carbon, etc. Half the world's territory basically has to be conserved, half Earth thinking. And the other half can be developed as usual. But what, what is in this thinking, right? It's basically saying that half the territory and half the world's population shall be consigned to what I call a kind of a non-market future, shall be relegated to the conservation imperative in order that the other half of the world, preferably the part where we all live, can continue to consume as we do, right? So, you know, I would say, is, is that not colonial debris that you're going to discount and devalue 
all of those people and their land uses and their land rights in favor of some greater good, which turns out to be, surprise, surprise, fantastically inequitable. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, climate and conservation programs are definitely an arena in which this kind of, you know, what I'm calling racialized logics and imperial debris are surfacing and we definitely should be watching them for sure. Great. Well, thank you so much for all of our participants from all over. We thank you for joining and Dr. Lee for your presentation here and the insightful answers to questions. We're deeply grateful for your experience and insights. Tanya, did you have any closing thoughts for us as we launch into this week? A word of good luck, maybe, because it's... (laughs) So just anything to close? I, you know, when you approached me about this, I said, well, you know, comparative colonialisms, colonial land legacies, like I've, I, I've been convinced for so long how that that's really an important topic, right? And I've only dabbled in, in it in small ways and that it is intrinsically comparative. So I think the particular comparison that you're attempting, like across the Portuguese empire is, you know, like I said, a very long period of time really disparate colonial situations, you know, colonized for different purposes under different kinds of rubrics. So it's it's a massive comparative project, right? It's not it's not what I the, the common thread is Portugal, but the the rest of it sprawls, right? In terms of the kinds of places, the kinds of issues, the kinds of prior tenure systems, and the time period at which these things were going on. So I think you've really got your work cut out for you to kind of to do that like what are the threads to pull here you know as I was reading all the papers I was thinking I I see a lot of things which are familiar and which resonate but as a comparative project which is focusing on the lucifone world what are the threads which are going to be really the rich ones to explore kind of comparatively I think is is the thing that they will you'll be presumably that's what you're going to be working on right you're going to be trying to figure out you know what can be drawn out here, which really is going to help us to understand this dynamic in a new way. So I think it's very exciting. It's really challenging. <laughs> but uh, yes, I do indeed wish you luck. And thank you so much for including me. Like I, my field is quite far from, you know, I, I don't work on on the Lucifer world at all and don't know much about it except for this reading that I've done. But I am convinced it's a, it's a good enterprise. So best of luck and thank you for listening to me. Well, good. Thank you. And we'll always welcome you into the small but growing fold of Timor Leste scholars. (laughs) Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Lusoscapes podcast. You can learn more about the Lusophone Land Legacies Research Group and their work at lusolandlegacies.org.